Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and put this like today in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Well, it sure took long enough. Now, let's see. We've had eight rate hikes from the Fed, a couple 25 basis point hikes, two 50s and four 75s delivered with the speed of a machine gun. Yet Fed Chief Jay Powell hasn't hit anything until today. Today, we realize that the speed of the rate hikes is threatening commercial real estate, crypto, and the whole startup economy, thanks to the closing of the IPO market. That's a real casualty of this Fed tightening cycle. So what happened to today? What caused the reversal from a usually green board in the morning to a board that's drenched in red with the Dow plunging 544 points, S&P plummeting 1.85%, and the NASDAQ nosediving 2.05%? Simple. The bank stocks collapsed. All of them, big, small, regional, national, lending, savings. It didn't matter. See, these aren't the battlegrounds where the Fed wanted to fight inflation. Remember, that's about wage inflation that they're worried about. But it turns out they're the battlegrounds where the Fed's suddenly winning. How did it unfold? Well, I heard a lot of misinformation, but I'm not going to let you get away with that. I'm going to tell you the truth about what happened, because I have been through three bank scares in my career. And I'm going to give you all the information I have now, which is going to be steep from that knowledge. First, we are beginning to get a slew of furious downgrades of the Commercial Real Estate Investment Trust. We're seeing worried notes about S.O. Green, Vernado, two once giant, now tiny office REITs. Because of the pending collapse of commercial real estate, thanks to the persistence of, yep, work from home. It's all about the remote economy again. It doesn't matter that the real problems are only concentrated in a couple of cities, and that's notably New York and San Francisco. It doesn't matter that the buildings are old, not of great use to anybody, maybe other than residential properties. The market's woken up and decided that every bank that has commercial leases, many pretty much all of them, will get crushed by those commitments. I do think that this part of the equation is overblown. There's a lot of good buildings out there. But we are indeed watching the train wreck right now of WeWork play out again. Can you believe it? This time with a difficult debt restructuring that I don't even know what's going to happen. We don't know how things are going to pan out here, but I think this segment will be contained. That was considered wildly bullish today. 
No matter, every bank stock under the sun got obliterated. Welcome to day one of the commercial real estate pandemic. Of course, it's not just the commercial real estate portfolios that may be at risk. For instance, we learned today that SVB Financial, that's the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, had to raise $2.25 billion in one day. That's a tremendous rate, tremendous fundraise. One day! Because it had some very serious portfolio losses. It shocked everyone because this is a very good bank. Not expected to have many problems. I'm used to these guys. They're, they're, I don't know, pretty sturdy? I thought... Now, these losses weren't real estate related. They're IPO related. See, SVB Financial has a long history of being the banker to the future stars, the startups that are about to have initial public offerings in the not too distant future. Great business normally. But what happens if they can't come public because there's no appetite for IPOs? Well, hold it. That's exactly what's happening now. Suddenly, venture cap backed companies that look like they were sure bets to come public soon and soar. Well, they're now very risky. Suddenly, loans made against those sure bets, illiquid, not yet public, common stock, that was the collateral. They're even riskier. We didn't know how risky until today, when this outfit copped in needing more capital to pop up its reserves. Now, we don't know how much, uh, but we know there's now the possibility that the next Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos may not be able to pay back their loans that they made against future stock that was going to come public and be, a, I don't know, red hot. And the collateral will end up being maybe much less than the companies they work for if they can't come public. Look, think about it. If you can't come public and every day you need more money and you've borrowed money against that common stock that you hope would come public one day, well, you're in a real jam, aren't you? What happens if you need more money? Well, this is what happens. We also learned that SVB's financials owns investments, their own investments in their balance sheet, namely the billions of dollars of treasuries out three years that they had are way underwater now. Yeah, the Fed raised them that quickly. As the bank scrambled to sell more than $20 billion of those securities, it locked in a loss of roughly $1.8 billion, hence they had to raise a lot of money. Because they need capital now. They had to sell those treasuries at depressed prices rather than be able to keep them till they came due. Now, mind you, in any other market, treasuries bought out three years and change wouldn't be underwater and wouldn't require losses to be taken and capital to be raised. But when you think about it, we are not, we're not in just any kind of market. The Fed's incredibly rapid rate hikes are finally starting to bite. They're beginning to wreck one seemingly ultra-safe portfolios of treasuries, bought even as recently as years ago. That's how quickly bonds have gone up in yield and down in price. So SVB's stock plummeted a bone-chilling 161 points. Extraordinary 60%. Was that an overreaction? Not really, because until this morning, I didn't have any inkling that there was anything awry, nor did almost anyone else. The collateral damage to the rest of the banks is profound because not only did we start fearing the commercial real estate loans, we also became petrified about loans made to people in venture capital-backed firms that may not make it. And suddenly we had to worry about how underwater the treasury portfolios might be. Treasury is supposed to be the closest thing to a risk-free investment out there. But they're not risk-free if you have to sell them before they reach maturity and you get the principal back. Finally, crypto has become a pain point again 
because the first national bank in crypto, also known as Silvergate, had a bank run and is now being wound down. How'd that happen? Just as SVB was the banker to Silicon Valley startups, Silvergate was the banker to crypto exchanges. While crypto prices have recovered from the FTX fiasco, all sorts of crypto-related businesses keep imploding. So the bank of crypto never really recovered. Now it is Gonzo. Gonzo as in ain't got nothing for you. Now, few banks are like Silvergate, but some are indeed like SVB. I think SVB has been overly punished after today. But who cares? I mean, let's think about it. The fear is just too palpable. I also think the pin action in the rest of the bank stocks is too severe. But unlike most public companies, the financials, they can't defend themselves. They can't say, hey, hey, buy us. We are in trouble because trouble is determined by the regulators, not them. And the regulators are never going to go out on a limb for their banks. That's why when you see the banks getting shelled, you don't instantly say, aha, let's go buy the stock of J.P. Morgan, which I actually think is in good shape against or any commercial real estate issues. And they didn't make risky loans to startups, and they wouldn't even accept my crypto, which is at last collapsing, although I don't have any now. Again, I'd love to say that it's too early. We just, it's too early. We just had day one of the recognition of how fraud banking stocks can be. Let's give it a couple days. However, don't forget, the market wasn't you flying this morning before the bad banking news overwhelmed the tape. It was flying because we got a weak jobless claims number at 8.30 this morning, causing interest rates to finally come down. Weak economic data is a sign that the Fed might not need to tighten as aggressively going forward. Good news for stocks. But SVB and Silvergate cast such a pull over the market that it swept all the optimism out the door. Will it change tomorrow? First, we have to endure the travails of a once-large European bank, Credit Suisse, which has had the delay its reporting after a last-minute SEC inquiry. Never positive sign. Then we need to see that February employment number. It's all it's pretty good. If, if it's cool in any way, shape or form, I think there could be plenty to buy because I simply don't expect the flurry of SVBs or Silvergates because uh, they are indeed niche players that collapse. They're niche. They're not broad. They're not representative of the industry. And they'll be in the rearview mirror soon enough. I'm not sanguine about the cascading regionals or Schwab, which was off big today. But I am staying open-minded as my travel trust just doesn't have enough good bank stocks. And I'm on the lookout for one. Bottom line, keep your eyes on the non-farm payroll prize. A weak jobs number means it's time to invest in fast-growing tech stocks when no other SVB or Silvergate-like disasters unfold, eventually even the bank stocks will be worth buying. Not yet, as traders think there'll be plenty more issues to come. But soon, if the Fed no longer has to keep up this Metallica jam session of rate ice, we have to start doing some buying. Let's go to Dawn in Michigan. Dawn. Hello, Jim. Booyah. Thank you for taking Booyah, my call. Booyah, Dawn. How are you? I wanted to I'm good. Um, I wanted to good. know if I should buy more, hold, or sell my stock in Johnson Johnson, and what do you think the future holds for the stock? Okay, this is one of the worst runs on J&J I've ever seen. Some of it's related to talc. We own the stock, unfortunately, for Chapel Trust. I've liked it for so many years. I just think it's a good 3% yield. Yes, I know it's got lawsuits. I know that they've been winning lawsuits. The company is splitting up. I don't think you're ever going to get this stock during uh, for less than 14 times earnings. I think you have to buy J&J. I've been wrong. For my travel trust on J&J. But at 3% yield, I would buy this stock. It's down 14% like that. Let's go to Russell in New York. Oh, no, we don't have any time for more calls because I went on so long about the banks and I apologize. And I apologize for my throat. I tried to raise some money for a very important cause that my wife's involved in last night. And I shot my vocal cords. 
A weak jobs number means it's time to invest in fast-growing tech stocks. Eventually, even the bank stocks will be worth buying, but oh, not yet. Well, made money tonight. One of our favorite technicians, Larry Williams, has a new call on AMD. I'm digging into the charts and sharing what he's seeing. Then, the snacking theme is back and better than ever. <laughs> a welcome break from the backs. So where do I come down on my favorite stocks in the group? I'll give you my take. And on a day like today, where the market gets crushed, you have to look for some names that can hold up in the face of volatility. So I'm reviewing some dividend antidotes. Yes, I think they could, your portfolio can always use one of those. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. How do we get our bearings in a perplexing market at least where we're constantly trying to figure out the Federal Reserve's next move in a seemingly endless fight against inflation. The other day, Fed Chief Jay Powell warned that he'd have to get more aggressive with his rate hikes in order to cool down a still overheated economy. Then today, we got some weaker than expected jobless numbers, indicating that maybe things are moving in the right direction, again, at least from the Fed's perspective. In environments like this one, sometimes you, what you gotta do, you gotta pull out. You gotta just pull right out of this macro stuff, and you gotta put it on hold, find a more reliable way to navigate your way through the market. 
Not that the macro doesn't matter. It sure does. But two months ago, when we thought the Fed was ready to declare victory, and that didn't turn out to be the case, now the conventional wisdom says they still need to slam the brakes on the economy. Who knows where it will be in another two months from now, especially with the collapse of the bank stocks today. And that's why I like to take a more quantitative approach. So tonight we're going unemotionally off the charts with the help of old pal Larry Williams, legendary technician, market historian, who's been the top expert in the space before I was Lieutenant Rooney in Arsenic and Old Lace back in Springfield High. Larry's written over a dozen books and created a host of other proprietary technical indicators, which is why you can find them all, and it's dynamite. If you go to the website, IReallyTrade.com. More important, he's got a phenomenal track record, especially in the last few years. Hey, remember, he's the one who called the bottom, the COVID bottom, spring of 2020. Everyone else thought the market was just going to be stuck in lockdown forever. And by the way, he also caught the most recent rally that we had in 2023, which was, if you remember, a pretty good one. I love featuring Larry's work because he's always searching for patterns, for unemotional patterns, for cycles that repeated themselves over and over throughout history. He's more of a market historian than a typical chartist. We don't necessarily know why these patterns seem to keep repeating, but the fact that they've done so in, in so many times means the odds are more likely, I think, to be on your side. Which brings me to his next big call, one that's been puzzlingly strong until today. AMD, the stock of AMD, the semiconductor company run by the brilliant Lisa Su. Williams points out that he's noticed a cyclical wave that takes place in AMD stock roughly in every three years. This wave has produced rallies 84% of the time. That's money since the stock began trading all the way back in 1980. In other words, we've seen this setup 14 times before, and it's worked on 12 of these occasions. That's what you call a high probability trade. That's actually the name for it. So first, take a look at the daily chart of AMD with Larry projecting for what it might look like if the same pattern plays out this time. From the right about from right about now through October, the stock has been up 84% of the time during this period historically. Now, what exactly does that mean? Let's go through some examples of this pattern from the last couple decades. Check out AMD's chart from 1999 through the first half of 2000, okay? We know one swallow does not mean summer's here. So the next chart shows the wave pattern for the last 20 years with each of the occurrences of the pattern so we can gain some perspective of what to expect this year. Williams' wave cycle predicted an up move in AMD from October of 1999, now we're going back there, I know, through May of 2020, and that's exactly what we got. Uh, 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 with an explosive rally right at the end of the dot-com bubble. And remember, we're trying to catch these moves. We're trying to catch discrete moves here. Fast forward three years, the next time the pattern kicked in was February of 2003. Now, AMD had the, had, had the expected early run-up, then it roared as the second leg of the cycle kicked in that June, taking the stock to new all-time highs. Completely unpredictable, except by Larry. The next time in 2006, okay, it didn't quite work out. Williams' wave cycle predicted a rally in mid-June of 2006, but while the stock got a, it got a bit of a lift in a bear market, it quickly gave back those gains, although the declines got worse once the wave pattern ended. Even though the pattern didn't work in 2006, at least the stock caught a breather during a broader decline, so it's relative. The wave came again in late 2009. This time it predicted the action of AMD perfectly. What a run. Look at this. I want that run, especially after today. Yeah? The stock ran up through the spring of 2010, which is exactly what Larry's pattern obviously uh, called for. Obviously, it doesn't always work this well. It didn't work at all in 2006. But the point here is identifying cyclical patterns with a high probability of success. Hey, it worked like a charm in 2013. 
AMD caught fire a couple of months after the wave cycle predicted it would, and then the move tapered off in late summer. Again, in line with the pattern. When the next wave cycle came in 2016, the stock's trajectory fit Larry's pattern incredibly closely. Another great rally that tapered off exactly when it was supposed to. The last time this pattern came due was in late 2019 and early 2020. AMD actually began rallying in October 2019, about a month before the wave pattern became due. Then it continued to roar, went off track hard when COVID hit, but quickly came roaring back as part of the second leg of this super up cycle. Now let's go back to the daily chart of the action this year. Williams likes what he sees here. I think that this was part of driving the stock today before we had the bank situation. And the stock's been an uptrend in recent months, which suggests to him that this year it'll be in phase with the wave pattern. Remember, the one time this pattern didn't work in the last 23 years was in 2006, when the stock was already experiencing a steep decline before the wave was, was supposed to hit. With AMD already rebounding, the cycle is more likely to resemble the positive action we've seen historically. Of course, Williams thinks it's too hasty to just take your cue from a single long-term cycle forecast. He also likes to cycle, uh, search for shorter cycles that have been repeating themselves in the same stock. So let's check out this chart which shows AMD with Larry's long-term cycle forecast in red and his short-term cycle forecast in blue. Right now, his short-term cycle says the stock's likely to roar in from late March through early May. Then it projects a cool period with stocks seeing another powerful leg higher in August. I'll take this too. It's exactly when the leg, second leg of Larry's long-term forecast kicks in. Bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Larry Williams suggest that AMD stock should be ready to roar over the next few months, primed perhaps by today's action. Even though I hesitate to aggressively recommend anything tech with the Fed once again on the warpath because of inflation, we know AMD reported a tremendous quarter a little over a month ago, and it wouldn't surprise me if this positive three-year pattern ends up playing out just like it normally does historically. The thing that's been dogging AMD is the semiconductor glut. And I think that's coming to an end, which would give this stock the major boost it needs to fulfill this pattern. Let's go to Mary in Hawaii. Mary. Booyah. Booyah, Mary. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good. Aloha. I am a long-time oh, listener. Mahalo. Okay. <laughs> but a first-time caller. I have a question about NVIDIA. They recently filed for a mixed-shelf offering of up to $10 billion. What is this, and what does this mean for the stock's future? Okay, it's a great question, Mary. You know, they filed that. It's just something that they're going to be ready if they need the cash. They probably won't. They've actually got a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, March 21st begins an amazing conference with all sorts of great people, and you're going to hear things about AI and and NVIDIA's role that I think is going to catapult this stock. So please stay in it. Let's go to Joe in New Jersey. Joe. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for having me on. Oh, sure, Joe. I'm glad you called in. Uh, hey, with uh, Intel trading at 52-week lows and cutting their dividend 66%, is it a buy? No, I, I got to buy companies that recommend companies that are doing well. We have a very tough tape. If I start recommending companies that are down and out without a catalyst to turn it around, I think I'm going to hurt you, not help you. So I say Intel is a pass. I like AMD and NVIDIA, both which are owned by the Chattel Trust, far more. 
right? The charts are interpreted by Larry Williams suggest that AMD stock should be ready to roar over the next few months. It wouldn't surprise me if this positive three-year pattern ends up playing out just like it normally does historically. Hey, much more man money ahead. Is it time to take a bite of the saggy of the uh, snacking cohort? Yes, you will see my shopping basket of snack food stocks that I think may be in this tough environment once again should be in your radar screen. Then there are a few uh, terms I hear all the time on Wall Street, and I'm ready to retire. I'll reveal what they are. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. It's official. We love to snack. Every earnings season, we pour over the quarterly reports and the conference calls to see what companies are saying, not just about their own business, but about broader themes or trends that can help us pick winners, especially when the market's gotten ugly like today. And as we wrap up fourth quarter earnings season, we've heard the same story from packaged food company after packaged food company. The snacking category is on fire. Yesterday, Campbell's Soup reported an excellent set of numbers. Solid top and bottom line beat with management raising the full-year forecast substantially. More importantly, while their meals and beverages really did very well, 11% organic growth, it was the snack segment that drove these results. With 15% organic growth, Wall Street was only looking for 9%. Well, the conference call CEO, Mark Klaus, who was so good today when he was in Monsera interview, said that Campbell's Soup had, quote, the strongest share growth in both cookie cracker, and salty snacks among all major branded players. Pretty strong statement. So if you want to play the snack boom, very inexpensive, well run. Campbell's the way to go. According to Klaus, all brands grew across dollars, volume, and units, showing the power of a portfolio and the relevance of the consumer snacking behavior, even in this current economic environment, end quote. Specifically, he called out strong performance from Pepperidge Farm cookies, snack factory pretzel crisps, kettle chips, uh, late, late July tortilla chips, as well as OG of snack brands, Goldfish. It's had a 21% sales lift. 21. And it's now well on its way to management's goal of $1 billion in annual sales. And this is a very old brand that has been just revigorated. Klaus said this was the second second quarter of Goldfish being the largest driver of growth for the entire cracker business. Very encouraging. Of course, it's not just Campbell's. That's kind of my point here, okay? Uh, there are huge, plenty of huge winners from the snacking movement, like, like PepsiCo. Even if it's not a pure play because of the core beverage business, when PepsiCo reported on February 9th, they delivered a strong quarter, driven in large part by their Frito-Lay North American Snacks division. 
which had a staggering 18% organic growth. Management called out double-digit net revenue growth for many of its largest brands, including Doritos, Cheetos, Lay's, Ruffles, Tostitos, and Fritos. Man, they're doing well. Their hot stuff is doing very, very well. And they got some emerging brands like Popcorn or Smart Food Sun Chips. But what I would emphasize is that this category is back, as you can see, because I didn't even have to mention that uh, the Kettle Chips, by the way, is doing incredibly well for Campbell's. A couple weeks after that report, Pepsi presented at the annual uh, Consumer Analyst Group of New York Conference, that's called Cagney for short, uh, where CEO Ramon LaGuarta provided some additional color on the snacking boom, saying, quote, there's some secular trends that I think COVID has accelerated. Maybe this new inflation will accelerate even more, which is people are eating their 2,000 calories or whatever in the day in a much more unstructured way. That continues to be the case. And as people are spending more time at home, those calories are becoming more of a home-based unstructured. And we see more snacking occasions during the day. And we see more cooking, both happening at home, actually more entertainment at home. So socializing at home, end quote. Long-winded way of saying snacking is back. So this is COVID year shift that simply hasn't shifted back as the pandemic subsided. And Mark Klaus said very similar things to me that I runs Campbell's. He's just saying, look, a lot of it's work from home, but a lot of it's now in grain. And what I think is incredible is it's the same brands that I had when I was growing up. About a week before PepsiCo reported, we got a strong set of numbers from Hershey, which has quietly been one of the best stories in the packaged food universe for the past few years. Now, everyone knows Hershey's for its iconic candy bars, uh, Hershey, Kit Kat, Twizzlers, York. But they also have a newer set of salty snack brands, including a number of better-for-you options like Skinny Pop, Pirate's Booty, uh, Pack Up, Packy, always get it wrong, along with the recently acquired Dodge Pretzels. And when I just tell you that this brand, some of these brands have been kicked around for a long time, but they've gotten to Hershey and Hershey's done a remarkable job with them, reinventing them. It's all working for Hershey, which is more or less a pure play on snacking. The company had 10.7% organic growth on a constant currency basis in the most recent quarter. CEO Michelle Buck, my wish would come on the show, explain the strength, telling us pretty much the same story we heard from PepsiCo a week later. Buck also stressed that her snack brands are recession-resistant, saying, quote, chocolate moments are such a heavily integrated part of consumers' weekly routines, from rewarding moments to stress relief to self-care and everything, everything in, in between. They would indicate they would rather cut back on other expenses for making room for chocolate because they love it so much and it's so affordable. Salty snacks are another regular companion. The consumers are hard-pressed to cut back out of their grocery budget, end quote. That's amazing. In other words, this doesn't get hurt if things get tough. She points out that this stuff is more or less a necessity. It's not discretionary at all, especially if you've got kids. Just before Hershey reported, we got some terrific results from Mondelez. Still another one. Pure play on snack food with some iconic brands. Here we're talking about Oreos, Chips Ahoy cookies, Ritz Triscuits, and Wheat Thins crackers. They've also made some smart acquisition in recent years, buying Tate's Bake Shop cookies, Toblerone, and Cliff Bars. All these new brands are growing nicely, and the recent overall numbers have been fantastic. In the fourth quarter, Mondelez at 15.4% in granite growth, a full 5 percentage points higher than Wall Street was projecting. Mondelez CEO Dirk Vanderput told a great story in the conference call, and I'm going to quote him here, so, talking about how, quote, our consumer continues to hold up well across most geographies, prioritizing snacking and buying more volumes of our products despite significant price increases, end quote. 
A couple weeks later at the Cagney conference I mentioned earlier, Vanderput went into more detail in the snacking story, saying, quote, consumer research confirms that snacking is more and more prioritized over traditional meals and that demand for snacks is continuing to grow, end quote. They said it's a poll that Mondelez conducted, along with consumer research firm, they found that 75% of people always make room for snacks in their grocery budget, even as prices keep rising. 60% of people said they expect to spend the time, say the same or more time and ch- on cookies and chocolates this year. Then 72% said they, re- they rely on affordable indulgence, like chocolate, to help them get through the day. Vanderbilt also pointed out that consumers tend to have a ton, a ton of brand loyalty in the business. Which is one reason why these packaged food companies can get away with their putting through big price increases on candy uh, and chips. Finally, please don't forget about General Mills. This is one of the strongest, too, which, among many other businesses, has a big presence in snacking. And that includes well-known brands like Nature Valley, which I happen to like, Check Mix, a bunch of fruit snackers, brands like uh, Gushers, Fruit by the Foot, and then Annie's, and some hot snacks like Totina's Pizza Rolls. We haven't heard from General Mills since the reported excellent set of numbers back in December. 11% organic growth, led by 18% organic growth from their snacks category. We'll get their next quarter in two weeks, but based on the way things are going, uh, based on the way things have happened for Campbell's Soup and PepsiCo, Hershey and Mondelez recently, I'm pretty optimistic about Mills. I'm very optimistic. Hey, but don't forget that General Mills owns the phenomenal Blue Buffalo pet food business. Dogs love snacking, too. Bottom line. If you thought Americans couldn't love snack food any more than they already do, this earnings season has proven you wrong. I like all the packaged food companies I just mentioned, but maybe the best way to play the snack boom is I, I got the noodling about this is Eli Lilly, which has an incredible new weight loss drug because, holy cow, there's nothing worse for you than junk food. Especially, well, maybe with alcohol. At least these packaged food companies have no commercial real estate, they have no crypto, and no Silicon Valley startup exposure. On a day like that, I've got to tell you, that may mean everything. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, which companies are cranking up their dividend? Is one of them right for you? Share the wealth next. Now that Fed Chief Jay Powell confirmed that the fight against inflation is far from over, we need to fall back on what can work during a Fed-mandated slowdown. They took on a whole new urgency with today's collapse of the most economically sensitive bank group. That's why I want to deploy a tried-and-true strategy that'll work for you at home, picking some of the best names from the companies that have been raising their dividends the most. The rationale is pretty simple here. If the company's raising its dividend dramatically, it means management feels very confident about the future. It's their way of signaling that business is good. You don't raise a dividend just to cut it. So, quickly. so tonight we're picking some names from the universe of S&P 500 constituents that have raised their payouts the most this year. We're drawing from a list compiled by S&P Global's Howard Silverblatt, who graciously posts this data on the S&P 500 website. Silver glad stuff is terrific. Now, when you look at over the numbers, there are 40 companies in the S&P that have boosted their dividends by more than 10% or, or more, okay, by 10% or more since the beginning of the year. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my top dozen from that list with an honorable mention at the end. And we're going to start with one just reported. Wow. Lights out. Dick's Sporting Good. It jumped to the top of the dividend boost list earlier this week when it reported that amazing surprise of the fourth quarter and then topped that off by more than doubling its payout. 
take it from just under $2 to 4 That's extraordinary. No wonder the stock's up 13% this week and now trading at 52 week high. Don't you wish you had one of those instead of a bank? But even after that run, even after more than doubling its dividend and bringing the yield up to 2.7%, the stock still sells at a paltry 11 times earnings. I've been a fan of this story since it came public. Dix is up 40% since I just re-recommended it last April, and I think it can keep working its way higher. I love management here, particularly after that huge dividend boost. You know who else has doubled their dividend this year? Kramer Fave Constellation Energy, the independent power producer that's all about nuclear. I started pounding the table on this one right after it was spun off by the old Exelon. Okay, that was his parent early last year. Constellation is now up 46% since I endorsed it, despite pulling back about 20 bucks from its, its late November high. The key to the story is that nuclear power is the only way to generate large amounts of carbon-free energy at scale in a reasonable time frame. Of course, it still competes with fossil fuels, which is why the stock's pulled back hard since the price of natural gas peaked and has plummeted. That said, Constellation Energy remains one of the clearest winners from last year's misleadingly named Inflation Reduction Act. So I think you're getting a good chance to buy the stock on weakness. Clearly, imagine feels good about the prospects or else they wouldn't have given you a 100% dividend increase. 100%. Next, the Cell Storage Real Estate Investment Trust Public Storage had the third largest dividend boost with its 50% payout hike. This one's not my favorite story, especially since public storage is trying to acquire its rival life storage. I don't like that. But man, it's now got a 14% yield, a 4% yield. Now, I got to tell you that uh, that's also on top of the 13 plus special dividend they gave you. They gave you a $13 dividend, 4% yield. I mean, that's incredible. And they got that from the proceeds to, of selling a non-court part of its business to Blackstone. At these levels, public storage trades at 18 times this year's funds from operations estimates, the rent equivalent of earnings. Well, I think you could do a really better. You could probably do a heck of a lot worse. The two best oil service companies, SLB and Halliburton, SLB used to be Schlumberger, were both near the top of the list with dividend hikes of 43% and 33% respectively. Oh, I love this industry in a year where oil prices are at a solid level because the industry is uninvested in drilling for years, which means producers need to spend fortunes just to maintain their current levels of production. The oil service operators are pretty much completely sold out here, and these huge dividend hikes indicate immense confidence that the business will continue to be great. In the end, I prefer HAL, which is why we own it for the Chapel Trust. Halliburton's management believes we're in the early innings of a multi-year move. I know the stock's been soggy, but I agree with them. Now, after a tough year, there are very few tech stocks on the dividend boost list and even fewer semiconductor names. And that's why it jumped out at me when I saw NXP Semi actually boosted its payout by more than 20%. Now, NXP is one of the cheap chip makers that's most levered to new automobile sales, which have been consistently strong because they have so much content in modern cars. As long as new cars remain so, so really just one of the beacons of this economy, I'm inclined to remain positive on NXP Semi. Next, I think the arms dealers to the life sciences industry making a comeback this year. And the, right now, I'd say the biggest and to some degrees the best, you know, Dan Hurt from Channel Trust, which is why I hesitated, is Thermo Fisher Scientific. And that just put through a 17% dividend increase. Hey, by the way, just yesterday, American Express announced a 15% dividend boost along with a fresh 120 million share buyback authorization, which equaled roughly 16% of the share count. That's a gargantuan buyback. I am a big fan of American Express. 
Then there's Jacob Solution. I know you don't care, but listen to me. It's a sleepy engineering construction company with gigantic exposure to the infrastructure bill Congress passed roughly a year and a half ago. That spending is about to kick in. And once it does, Jacobs will be making probably, I think they may be the strongest in the whole infrastructure segment. They made the list for 13% dividend boost. I, I know these guys, they're incredibly confident. I like it. And we've been recommending Archer Daniels Midland since the beginning of last year. It's one of our favorite dividend aristocrats. ADM had a great year, okay, amid a strong agricultural cycle. But the stock's now pulled back more than 20 bucks from its highs. The 12.5% dividend boost indicates that agriculture, the entire cycle, is still strong. I'd be a buyer here betting that the stock can return to it or exceed its 2022 highs. Now we've got another CNBC investing club name, Humana. A little out of favor right now, but it's, oh, man, I think this is one of my favorite stocks in the entire portfolio. It's one of the best managed care companies with a stock that's now pulled back 5% year to date because of the early rotation away from safety stocks. Believe me, that rotation, as I keep telling you, is about to go back now that people are worried about the banks. With the Fed clearly back in an aggressive inflation-fighting mode, I expect the rotation to go in the other direction, allowing Humana's stock to make a comeback. Less than two weeks ago, we spoke with Train Technologies, the HVAC and refrigerated trailer company, and I thought that they told an excellent story. Train's another quiet winner from the Inflation Reduction Act as they retrofit commercial buildings, especially schools, to be more energy efficient. They're in, they're in, in, in two, uh, they've got a 12% dividend boost. Uh, and remember, the world's getting tougher on greenhouse gases. Train has a solution to the problem. Of course, they also cause their problems with their older, less efficient equipment. But Wall Street only cares about the future. We never gave up on ProLogis here. That's the logistics facility-focused real estate investment trust last year, uh, it, it, even as others did when we started hearing all those e-commerce companies talk about how they overbuilt their logistics infrastructure. But ProLogis owns the best properties here, and I still haven't seen anything that makes me worry about their business. I know I saw Etsy down a lot today. Please, don't be so granular. E-commerce is still in bull market mode. I'm feeling more confident after a 10% dividend increase. Finally, I'll give you a bonus. United Rentals announced its first ever dividend in January. This is the largest equipment rental company in America with huge exposure to infrastructure and construction. I covered it in train last night at the top of the show. This stock sold off hard last spring due to worries about a Fed-mandated slowdown, but United Rentals has become recession-resistant, if only because there's so much government infrastructure spending on the way. The stock's actually up 28% year-to-date. Although even up here, it sells for mere 11 times earnings. And that dividend initiation is a sign of genuine confidence that its growth is very good ahead. Bottom line, there you have it. It's a baker's dozen of quality companies that have raised their dividends substantially so far this year. Look at the dividend boost menu and take your pick, even after today's terrible action. Mad Money is back after the break. Of course, when they say, when they say, blam. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the lightning round. Here's the to start with. Luis in Illinois. Luis. Hey, Jim. I want to get your thoughts on ticker symbol MPC, Marathon Patrolling. Oh, I like it so much. You talked about this morning, McCarl. What a winner. I think the mar- margins are going to improve there. It is great to pull the trigger. Bye, bye, bye. Let's go to Sam in Arizona. Sam. Hey, Jimmy Chill, a big booyah to you from Peoria, Arizona. How are you? 
I am doing well. I'm doing okay. How about you? Great, great. Thanks. Hey, I have a large, very large position in Robinhood. Um, what are your thoughts on the company? I got in pretty high. I'm not a fan. They're losing a lot of money. Doesn't seem anything exciting about it, especially in a world where Silicon Valley Bank, well, SVB, is struggling so hard. Let's go to Sue in California. Sue. Hi, Jim. I'm wondering what you think about a stock called Amplitude. No, losing a lot of money. Software, enterprise software is such a bad business. Again, we're not going to touch it unless they're making a ton of money. I got a bill in Georgia, please. Bill. Mr. Kramer, love the show. Yes. Need your help. Thank you. I'm in the house of pain with PayPal. I can't help you. I think that what we've discovered is the margins are collapsing in all sorts of business, particularly in fintech. It's not the time to be in fintech. Mark of Wisconsin. Mark. Jim, I've got a stock for you in the semiconductor. Yeah. And the stock is? Ah, uh, uh, man, Mark Ellis out there. I'll give him one. How about NVIDIA? All right, let's go to Stackwell. Oh, no, that's it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Kramer identifies a few terms he'd like to retire from the home gamer's lexicon. Go back to basics with Mad Money, next. Let's put this historical moment in perspective. When bears growl at the market. I know you're tired of it now, I'm tired of it, but get used to this sound. Kramer roars right back. It's abundantly clear that right now it feels like no Price is safe enough to buy. Stocks may be done, but mad money is never out. We're stuck for the moment with the fear, and it's real fear. Stick with Kramer, and let's find your portfolio's next big winner together. Nothing seems to matter except getting out ahead of the other guy. some terms we need to retire. Risk on, risk off, overweight or underweight. These terms were born in the institutional money management world. They have no business on this show or in your thinking because they'll almost always lead you astray. Allow me to explain. I've been writing about companies and their stocks professionally since 1981, and it's been a lucrative experience for many who read me. Believe me, if it weren't, I would have quit years ago. Along the way, we've seen promoters create all sorts of trading products around the S&P 500, tons of ETFs to mirror certain sectors. These companies made fortunes selling these stuff. They're promoters. Then we had flavor of the day ETFs and actively managed ETFs. That's nuts. These must be passive beings. In the process, lots of people, and especially institutions, got away from owning individual stocks entirely. We got to the point where the pools of capital became, that were being managed became so large, they overwhelmed the action in individual stocks. The, the stocks are too small. The only thing that mattered was the benchmark. Did you beat the S&P 500? If you're a money manager and you beat the benchmark, it's because you overweighted some winning sector or underweighted some loser. Most of these guys wouldn't dare to deviate too far from the benchmark because if you do that, it means you lose and all your investors will head for the hills. This kind of thinking still prevails in the world of institutional money management, but it shouldn't be in the case of our world. In this irrational world they've crafted, stocks have no value other than a percentage of an index as it's in a bushel or a pack. 
All cyclicals are created equal. Sequels, the pharmas and the techs. Their values change as a function not of their sectors, not of their fortunes, but of the sector's relations to the yield curve. A risk-off warning because of spike in treasury stock, treasuries may mean that the stocks of great companies need to be sold until the coast is clear that very afternoon and they can be bought and risks back on. I hate the silly little world of billionaire stock traders and their minions because it distracts us. It makes it harder to keep our eyes on the prize, trying to make real money by analyzing the fortunes of real companies. If we fall prey to their thinking, we miss all the changes these companies have made. We would have forever missed that NVIDIA created a processor that begat ChatGPT, mainstream AI. It wasn't just a gaming company. We never contemplate how enticing GE might have become if it stripped its aerospace business away or how those cyclicals I highlighted last Snipe became secular growers. I could go on and on. What you need to know is that it's not too late to change if that's how you think. You can free yourself from the change of hedge fund gobbledygook. That's what the CNBC's investing club about, turning your knowledge of individual companies into individual fortunes. And you need to free yourself from this mentality right now because we're seeing the obliteration of these baskets as they come face to face with reality, as the banks did today. Don't succumb to yesteryear. You're being traded to death by this risk on, risk off, overweight, underweight nonsense. Choose ownership of companies, not baskets, not barrels, not amalgamations. Start making sense, not underweights and overweights, and stop falling prey to the atavistic way money's managed in this country. It's not your world. And one day, if they keep running it this way, it won't be their money to run either. I like to say this always at Bull Market Summer. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.